probably 20 years or so ago, I was in a church and we would have church meetings where you'd get together to discuss various matters. And no matter what topic was on the agenda, there was always this old fellow in the church and he would always play the role of a contrarian. You know, that personality. Why do we have to do that? Why would we make that change? And best of all, when the presentation was being given on a biblical matter, I remember him shouting out, well, apart from the Bible, why would we ever do that? (laughs) And he used to make me laugh because I knew he was well-intentioned. But when he was asked, like, why do you do that? He would say, well, someone has to play the role of the opposition. I think he felt like he was in the Canadian parliament or something like that. And in some people's minds, I think we kind of have that idea that if we're going to bring life change to someone, we got to like point out their flaws, point out their flaws, always confront, always rebuke, always point out their negatives. And somehow that's going to stimulate them to grow. But actually in the word of God, especially as we study second Thessalonians chapter one today, uh, we discover that life change actually takes place largely through encouragement and biblical encouragement, by the way, is linked to biblical obedience. When a person obeys the Bible, they should be encouraged in that. They should be acknowledged for that. That helps to fan to flame their desire to serve God all the more heartily. Now, normally in outside of church circles and we're being encouraged or encouraging someone, what do, what do we tend to encourage people for? We tend to encourage people because they maybe gave generously to a local charitable cause. You know, we put their name in the newspaper. Or we encourage them because they've received some sort of an award or an accomplishment or graduated with a degree. Or we encourage people because they're handsome or they're beautiful. And we're like, wow, you look great. But these are all temporal in nature. The word of God calls the people of God to encouragement. We must encourage one another. And again, primarily what we're doing when we're encouraging each other is we're encouraging each other, not in our looks, not in our accomplishments, that don't really pay off in eternity, but we're encouraging each other when we are obedient to what God has spoken. So today I want to take you to second Thessalonians chapter one. And my message entitled is entitled a little encouragement goes a long way. So check this out. It begins as follows. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the introduction to the epistle. It actually sounds pretty similar to some of the other introductions that we received to the other letters that Paul wrote. And it's easy just to kind of like skip over it. It's just the preface. It's just kind of the, the thing you say at the beginning of a letter, but I actually would suggest that there's a couple things in here that are noteworthy. And before I point them out, let me just say this, that When we go into a church, so I don't know if you're new today. Some of you might be new. We've all been new to a church at some point in time. And we come in and either in the forefront of our mind or the back of our mind, what do we do? We're looking around and we're asking questions like, is this my tribe? Do the people look like me? Are there people with the same skin color that I have that speak my language that maybe are in my economic status that have kids about the same age as my kids, uh, maybe work in similar jobs. That's what we do, right? Do they dress like me? Do they sort of get me? Because that's how it works in the world. 
people are drawn together when they are alike in terms of their ethnicity or their occupation or their economic bracket or whatnot. But the beautiful thing about the church of Jesus Christ, which is radically different, is we're not together because we look alike or come from the same backgrounds. The reason why we are together is because the Lord Jesus has arrested us. He's grabbed a hold of us. He's changed us. He's transformed us. And so what bonds the people of God together is not a common language or a common skin color or a common cultural background, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul starts to write this church to the Thessalonian church, Paul wasn't a Thessalonian, but he's writing the church to the Thessalonians along with his compadres, Silvanus and Timothy. He says, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He acknowledges that the reason why they are a family of believers is because they have the same father, God. That's what bonds them together. This is, this is radical. This is God's radical vision for the church that he might be the father of all who would believe regardless of their gender, their cultural background, their language, their age. This is what bonds us together. This is why we have commonality And we can speak with one another, even though we work in different jobs, even though we come from different backgrounds and we can understand each other because together we've been transformed by Jesus. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God, our father. This is more than a greeting. It's a statement of fact. This is essentially Paul and Silvanus and Timothy's way of saying, we love you. We want God's best for you. We want God's grace to be poured out on you. We want God's peace to be poured out on you. You might think, ah, it's just a greeting. Kind of like, how are you? Anybody say, how are you when you came in today? I bet you they did. You probably, it was probably echoed a hundred times in the foyer of our church this morning. But when we say, how are you? We don't really mean, how are you, do we? Because our response is fine, good, great, good to see you. In fact, if you say to someone, how are you? And they're like, actually, I'm not very good. Or, well, let me tell you about my week. You're like, whoa, okay, that, I wasn't looking for all that information. I'm just, it's just a greeting. It's like saying hi. But grace and peace is more than just a greeting. It's the apostles well-wishing. It expresses his heart's desire for the people of God. And it should be my desire for you that you might receive grace and peace. And your desire for me that I might receive grace grace and peace. And that grace and peace is possible because it's founded in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this sweet introduction. And then I want to talk to you about the concept of encouragement. You know, we all need encouragement for the right things. We all need encouragement for the right things. And as Paul pens this letter to the Thessalonian church, he identifies two areas that we need to encourage each other in. And one means of encouraging one another. So let's study these together. The first one is found in verses three and four. And it is this. When we show evidence of faith, we should encourage each other. When we show evidence of faith, we should encourage one another. The Bible says we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. These are growth words, abundantly, increasing, growing. 
Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul's looking at the church and he's like, wow, I can see growth. I can see growth in several areas. It also teaches us, by the way, that if you are a growing Christian, it'll be evident. It'll be obvious. Sometimes I think we have this notion that growth is just all like an internal thing, just a heart thing. But in actual fact, if I'm growing in my faith and we're spending time together, you're going to be like, yeah, that guy's a little different than he was last year. And I've seen him progress since 10 years ago and on and on and on. And we may not see it in five minute intervals, but as we live our lives together year after year, decade after decade, this is the blessing of long-term relationships, by the way. We see how God is changing his people to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it takes a long time, but we see that growth over the course of time. If you are a genuine believer, we're going to see growth in your life. You will see outward qualities emerging in the life of every truly inwardly changed person. Now at the beginning of this verse, he uses the word ought. And that can sort of sound schoolmaster-ish. You ought to do this. You ought to do your homework. You ought to be good. You ought not to fight at recess. It's almost like that's a dull word. It's got like, that's a, a woefully awkward word. But that's not how it's intended here. It's not like you ought to do it. But it flows rather from a life of someone that sees it as a privilege to thank God for others. We ought to encourage one another in our faith because we're so delighted to encourage each other in the faith. When you see someone's life being transformed, what greater encouragement is there than that? You ought to acknowledge it. You ought to recognize that. Again, not in some dull, woeful, obligatory kind of way, but because you consider it a privilege to thank God for others. Now, In this text, I think we receive a crucial insight into the nature of encouragement. But before I point to it, let me just kind of make like an observation from my experience. I think some of you are probably going to laugh because you've had similar kinds of experiences. You're in church and someone's attempting to encourage you. You ever had someone attempt to encourage you? And their attempt to encourage you goes something like this. Um, Aaron, um, well, don't let this go to your head, but, and then they give their encouragement. And I would say that is not an encouragement because when translated, what they're actually saying is you're kind of prideful and arrogant and probably can't handle this, but let me encourage you in this area. It's not really an encouragement. Or we come to someone and we say, um, we're praying for you. God's clearly working in your life. God's doing a great work in your life. God's doing this. God's doing that. Praise God for it. And we walk away, but it's like, well, actually, you you never actually encouraged me. You just told me that you've given God praise for whatever it is you happen to have seen in my life. Now, the reason why we tend to do that is because we feel sometimes that it's inappropriate to actually verbally tell someone they're doing well because we think, well, that must rob God of glory. Or we're not really sure that the other person can handle it and will use the encouragement properly. However, 
As we read God's word, we don't see that kind of an attitude leak through in Paul's life. Paul very clearly attributes the success of the church to God, but he's also unashamed to say, you know what I do when I, when I talk about you, when I go to other churches, I actually boast about you guys all the time. I'm always bragging about you. I'm always telling all the other Christians about how your faith is growing in abundance. You're steadfast in your faith. You love each other. Like, like I've never seen before in other churches. I'm boasting and bragging about you all the time. And then he just lets it stand and lets the encouragement sink in to bless God's people. So here's a crucial insight. Biblical encouragement is both upward. The Bible actually uses the words here to God. It's upward, but it's also outward. The language of the text is boast about you. Biblical encouragement is upward and it's outward. God is praised for the work he's done doing among his people, but the people of God also must express their delight to one another. When they see another brother or sister walking in obedience before God, if we fail in this area, either one of these areas, we fail. So a failure to see God at work in our lives. What does that do? When we fail to see God at work in our successes, that robs God of glory. But when we fail to commend another Christian for their spiritual efforts, that's inhumane because we all need to be encouraged. And why is it that we need to be encouraged? Because when we are encouraged, that bears witness to the authenticity of our sanctification. So while we do not serve for the applause of men, we do need the affirmation of men in order that that might bear witness to the authenticity, the realness, the genuineness of our growth in Christ likeness. Here we have three things that this church happens to be commended for, and hopefully we can commend each other for these things as well. The first would be abundant faith. It's like, man, there's a lot going on in you. It's abundant. It's not just faith. It's abundant. Like I'm seeing you express your faith all the time. The way you interact with people, the way you respond to difficulties, the way you handle conflict, the way you give of your money, the way you serve. I mean, I'm seeing faith coming out of you left, right, and center. Your faith is abundant. And then the second area is family love. He commends them because... Their love for one another is, what's the word? Increasing. It's getting better all the time. They're learning to love each other all the time. You know what the world says? You know what you need? You need more self-love. More self-love. Now, it's true that you need to acknowledge that you're special and precious in the sight of a Lord, that you're made in the image and likeness of God, that you are a person who is of dignity and worth and infinite value. Yes, But I'm not convinced that many of us have as great of a deficit in that area as some people might tell us we have. We tend to be pretty good at self-love. The word of God tends to call us to others' love because that's where we often fall flat in our faces. As Paul looked at this church, it's like, man, I see it ever increasing. And then the third area is steadfast faith in the face of affliction. Steadfast faith in the face of affliction. You don't give up. You don't step down. You don't tap out. You've persevered. Let me give you a thumbs up. 
Christian life's not easy, but you haven't given up. Again, we don't serve for the applause of men, but we do need the affirmation of other brothers and sisters to bear witness to the authenticity of our sanctification. So can I give you some homework? I know it's Sunday, school's out, but can I give you like some homework to do this week? You guys game for that? Like five of you are. Okay, so for the five of you that are prepared, it's real easy. You'll be blessed by it. Think of two people right now that you have seen steadfast faith in, abundant faith, the ability to bear up under persecution, or some other virtue, generosity, diehard service, boldness in speaking truth, love for others. This week, prior to meeting next Sunday, send him a text, send him an email, give him a phone call, meet him in the foyer after church, and just encourage them. Just encourage them and let the, don't start it off with, don't let this go to your head, but <laughs> just encourage them. And so here's the deal. If you don't do your homework, you're not allowed to come to church next week. Okay? So we'll assume that everyone's done that who's in church next week. Can we do that? So just application, like go and encourage each other. Hey, it's going to be fun. You'll bless other people and I can guarantee you'll be blessed by it as well. So the second area where we need to encourage each other in is in suffering. So when we're suffering When suffering affirms our worthiness, which it does, we're going to see that in the text. We need to encourage each other. You're worthy. You've proven your worthiness because of the way you've handled your suffering. Check out verse 5 through 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. We're going to just kind of come back to that word, but kind of take a mental note. The righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So the church obviously was suffering because they were working for the purposes of the kingdom of God. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And then a little bit of end times theology When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And then I underline this next verse. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, And to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. What would be the one word in there that you wish didn't exist in your spiritual journey? Maybe affliction. How many of you love affliction? I love to be afflicted. Love suffering. So great. No, no liar. None of us like it. I don't like it. I don't like to be sick. I don't like to be persecuted. I don't like people to attack my savior. I don't like it. I don't like suffering of any sort. I like it when things go good. 
But through the eyes of faith, what I do know is that God uses affliction or suffering for redemptive purposes. Yet sometimes when we're afflicted, we turn into like Eeyore. Remember Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? The stuffed donkey. Always a pessimist. (sighs) Everything's always bad. Everything's always bleak. Like the black cloud follows him around throughout his life. just slumping along. Nothing's ever good. When we're afflicted, it's easy to think, okay, just a second. God is loving. God loves me. He saved me. I thought that was going to make my relationships better, my marriage awesome, my church experience, you know, perfect, and maybe raise my economic status and help me to get a job, and on and on and on and on and on. But I'm suffering. So maybe God actually hates me. Or maybe he's forgotten me. Maybe he dislikes me. I was talking to a brother in the foyer early this morning. Talking about a relative of his. It's abandoned God. Doesn't believe God exists. Why? Because he's suffering. How could a good God allow me to suffer? That's the mindset. It's so easy to fall into that. And the Thessalonian church could have fallen into that too and said, well, God's allowing us to suffer. He's afflicting us. The Christian faith is difficult. So we're out of here. We're going to go worship whatever, but definitely not the true and living God. Well, in this text, we can actually be encouraged, and here's why. It starts off by talking about the righteous judgment of God. Now, this is not saying that God is judging us in the sense that he is condemning us as his people, but this word judgment actually means trial or a contest we're going through. God in his righteousness tries his people. He tests his people. He allows us to suffer. He allows us to go through affliction because for some reason, guess what? We don't mature apart from suffering in this fallen world. We just don't. Think about this. Think about the words faith. If your life is absolutely perfect from end to end, why would you ever have to have faith? Faith in what? Everything's perfect. Why would you ever have to trust? Trust what? Everything's perfect. Why would you ever have to sacrifice? How can I sacrifice? Sacrifice means to give up. So much of the Christian faith actually requires suffering in order for us to be forced out of our selfishness and our immaturity into a place of Christ-likeness. Love. Mercy. You can't exercise mercy unless someone's offended you. You can't exercise forgiveness unless someone's hurt you. Over and over and over again, we realize the commands of scripture that draw us to become more like Christ, which we want to see in our lives, actually require affliction in order to put into practice. Think about that. God allows us to be tried. God allows us to go through these contests, but we are judged in order that we might be judged worthy, or we could say we are tried in order that we might be found worthy or proven authentic in our faith. Now this word worthy, we need to think about that too, because we might conclude then, oh, um, so I have to go through affliction in order to be made right with God? No. Two different kinds of worthiness spoken of in the scriptures, a little theology. The one would be positional worthiness and the other would be practical worthiness. So positional worthiness is a gift given to us by God. So why are we worthy in the sight of God? Because in spite of our sin, God sent the Lord Jesus Christ, who of course is entirely worthy, to die in Aaron Rock's place on Aaron Rock's behalf 
because I'm not worthy. The worthiness or the righteousness of Jesus is granted to me as a gift. So we say that when God looks at me, he looks at me through the work of Jesus Christ. He doesn't look at my efforts, my merits, what I bring to the table. He looks at me through the efforts and merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus worthiness is given to me. This is why it says we are in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. It's Christ's identity as the perfect, merciful, holy God of the universe that has been granted to the born again Christian. That's positional righteousness. You don't have to work for that. You don't have to prove that. That's a gift given to you by God. And so now we become citizens of the kingdom of God, as the text speaks of. But practical worthiness is essentially living it out, showing it, living in a way that looks like Jesus, speaking in a way that looks like Jesus or sounds like Jesus rather. Suffering is the tool that God uses to shape us. It's the the hammer on the hot metal on the anvil that is shaping that piece of metal into something useful. It's the press that bends and shapes an otherwise useless piece of tubing into something that can be useful. When I was in college, one summer I worked in a factory and transport trucks would drop off steel tubing, rather useless by itself. But these steel tubes would go through a bending machine and be bent into a certain shape. And then they'd be put into a press and they'd come down the line and the press would come down, fill up the ends with liquid and press down hard on these things and shape them into the top of a radiator cover. Then they'd come down the line and I'd take it off and I'd put it in a machine and we would punch two pierce nuts into it and cut the ends off. Now, if that piece of metal could speak, you think it would say, wow, this feels great. Being bent, being pressed, being pierced, being cut. Like, stop it. But unless it's bent and pressed and pierced and cut, it's just a chunk of tube on a skid. But now it becomes something useful. You can put it into an automobile that can drive to a certain location and get many years of use out of it. It's the same in the Christian life without affliction. Frankly, we're not that exciting. We're not that good. We're not that useful, but when we are forged under affliction, God shapes us into something more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, if you think about it, when we were studying the book of Habakkuk, we have the same kind of message there where God shapes us, he afflicts us. In that case, more of disciplinary. But in the end, God promises redemption, right? Look at the word, the sweet words in this text. In the end, God will grant relief, the Bible says. And then we have some end times teaching there. Christ will come with his angels. He will dispense wrath against his enemies. There will be eternal destruction that await those that do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have opposed the things of God. By the way, that's, that's weighty. It's talking about hell, folks. You know, the worst part of hell is not the temperature. You know that? Sometimes we talk about hell. We're like, oh, don't go to hell. It's really hot there. Whew. Super hot. There's flames there. People go back and forth. Well, is there going to be flames? Because the Bible also speaks of darkness. If there's flames, there's going to be light. And blah, blah, blah. 
Somehow there's going to be flames and darkness at the same time. But what makes hell terrifying is not the temperature. Look at the text. What is it that makes hell terrifying? The complete absence of the presence of God. We don't even know what that's like. None of us have ever experienced the complete absence of the presence of God. Even in our atheism, our darkest sins, God is still making your heart beat. He's still sustaining your digestive system. He's still allowing your brain to work. God is the sustainer of life. He didn't just create the world and walk away. God is sustaining you as you speak. Think about that. Every cell is being sustained by the sovereign hand of God. When God pulls out, you enter into nothing but a state of perpetual dying, eternal death, ongoing death, unlike anything else. When you say, I don't need the life giver. I don't need the creator. You rebel against him and fail to repent. You are consigned to a eternity of separation from the life giver. That's what makes hell terrifying. And it should terrify you. If you haven't repented of your sins and trusted him, the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, he desires to give you life. Sometimes in, even in our English language, we're like, wow, that was a hellish circumstance. What do we mean? There was no beauty in it. It was just immoral. It was grotesque. It was horrifying. It was disgusting. That's what life's like in the absence of God. That's what the destiny of every human being is going to be in the absence of surrender to the king, to the creator, God. And then it says, finally, in reference to the end times, God will receive glory and we will marvel at it. We'll be like, wow. Now, I've had plenty of wow moments with God, but this is going to be like, wow. <laughs> I think I scared some of you there. Sorry about that. This is going to be a wow moment with God. So we need to encourage each other when, when we're suffering. It's like, hey, God is shaping you. God is trying you, but hold up, persevere. Continue, continue to love, continue to serve, continue to trust, continue to believe. And in the end, what's your guarantee? You're going to get relief. And God's going to make all things new. He will repay, look at verse 6, with affliction, those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who have been afflicted as well as to us. So we just wait in hopeful anticipation for the Lord Jesus to come back. When we encourage each other in this area, it's so helpful because by ourselves and our weakness, we can lose sight of that. It's much easier to suffer when another Christian notices your suffering. Is it not? Notices your suffering and affirms our faith. Why, why do those of us that aren't physicians and nurses visit sick people in the hospital. Why do we do that? Do we come in with scalpels and surgical tubing and medications? No, we don't go because we can fix them, but we go because we know there's a gift to being a presence in someone's life when they're suffering. There's just something about 
someone being there and acknowledging your pain and suffering that, that is soothing. In fact, I would argue sidebar that almost all human suffering is not solved by a remedy, but almost all of human suffering finds perspective when we know God is present in our suffering. When God is present. That brings greater joy and contentment than a remedy to the actual problem that we have. The presence of God is soothing. And guess what? Who is the presence of God on earth? Primarily the church. This is why the church is called the body of Christ. Jesus has vacated the world physically and he's sitting at the right hand of the father advocating for us. And while his spirit dwells among us, we are the body of Christ. We dispense the love and the grace and the mercy the merciful characteristics of God to people who are in pain. His presence in suffering, again, is a greater blessing than the answer. So this is why we need to walk with each other. And when we see another brother or sister struggling and asking the Eeyore-like questions of life, we come alongside, not with the answers, but with our presence. I've been around a lot of suffering people in my life in ministry. And on occasion, you'll have one ask the question, why did this happen? I've just sort of gotten over feeling in any way, shape, or form compelled to give them an answer. I don't feel compelled to give them an answer. Why? Because I don't have one. But what I can remind them of is the presence of God in their suffering. And unless they're far, far, far from God and just don't want to hear it, it's amazing how spirits are revived when you remind them of the presence of God in the middle of their suffering. Let's encourage each other in this way because we all suffer. Finally, we have our two ways to encourage each other or two things we should encourage each other in. And now the third one is more of something we should do as an active means of encouraging one another. And it's through mutual prayer. Verses 11 and 12 teaches this. To this end, We always pray for you. So always pray. That's like our unceasing prayer, our pillar of unceasing prayer. We always pray for you. It's an outward prayer that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every good work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what kind of prayer I find incredibly easy? Praying for me. I love to pray for me. (laughs) Lord, bless me. Heal me. My back's a little sore again. Lord, provide for me. Bless my family. Bless my kids. Bless my wife. Do this for me. Do that for me. That's easy prayer. It may not always be holy prayer. I mean, it's not inappropriate to pray for yourself. But let's say, let's say we could um, take all the prayers you've ever prayed and put them on a digital recording. And then we could get some software and we could run that software, run the prayers through the software and we could determine like what percentage of my prayer and my entire Christian journey have I prayed for myself and what percentage have I prayed for others. I think there might be some collar stretching moments if we were to find it, what that statistic is, because it's easy to pray for me, myself, and I. But what Paul models for us here is praying for one another. 
In fact, he uses a strong word. We always pray for you. Do you always pray for me? Do you always pray for your small group? Do you always pray for your church? Who'd you pray for this week? Praying for one another is a huge blessing. And of course, we know that when we pray, we're not manipulating God or really changing God's mind on things. Robert L. Thomas, the commentator says, is it not God's pleasure for saints to cooperate with his ongoing program? Is it not God's pleasure for saints to cooperate with his ongoing program? Through prayer, it's really more about us aligning our will to God than us trying to twist God's will to ours. But nevertheless, we are called to pray for one another because apparently in God's sovereign plan, one of the decisions that he's made is he acts or doesn't act based upon the prayers of his people. Think about that. He's still sovereign. But in his sovereign plan, he chooses to act or not act based upon the prayers of his people. So why do we pray for one another? And what do we pray for one another? We pray that we would be made worthy. Again, not positionally because we already are for true Christians, but practically in response to God. In other words, we could say, I want to pray for you and I want you to pray for me that my walk would match my talk. That my practice would match my profession that my choices would match my conversion. I want you to pray for me and I want to pray for you that I would live out my faith consistently. Why? Because I'm weak. Huh? I'm weak. In this Bible text, it also speaks of fulfilling every resolve and it speaks of a work of faith. So what that's speaking of is that, uh, so let's, let's use, let's use today's um, sermon as an example. So you're listening, and if you're anything like me when I listen to sermons or biblical teaching, I'm sort of listening to what's being said, and then I'm trying to draw connections to my own life, and I'm evaluating my strengths and my weaknesses, and I'm making resolves. I'm like, oh yeah, I need to change in that area. I need to do better in that area. Oh, I'm I'm doing well in that area. You're like, you're analyzing, you're assessing, you're analyzing, you're assessing. Is that just me, or are we doing that today? We're We're making resolves, right? But have you ever made a resolve and then like you, you fail before you leave the building or you fail by Tuesday morning? Like I made the resolve. What? I was so serious about that. I was genuine. I, like I really meant it. I made a resolve and then I forgot or I failed or I just willfully disobeyed. Or the text speaks of work of faith. So we want to work for the Lord. We want our work to be motivated by faith. We want our deeds to be truly righteous. So we're making these resolves to the Lord. We're trying to engage in works of faith, but then we fail. God's like, hey, why don't we pray for each other? Paul models this. I'm praying for you because I know, Thessalonians, you're making resolves. You want to do works. It's motivated by your faith, but you need prayer. We need to pray because in and of ourselves, we're not very good at fulfilling our vows. We pray that we would want to do good, that we would succeed at doing good. Do you want to do good? Like, well, I, I want to up here, but I don't in here. Like, I don't, maybe one of your problems like mine at times, is you don't feel like doing the right thing. You know what the next prayer to pray then is? Lord, change my feelings. So I may not 
feel like loving that person. In fact, I hate them. Lord, change my heart. I may not feel like forgiving that person. I feel bitter toward them. Next prayer is, Lord, change my heart. I may not be content. I may be envying someone. Lord, change my heart. We pray for one another because we want God to be glorified across his church. That is the bottom line to all of this. It's clear in verse 12. So that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy is praying for this church because they know they had the resolve. They know they wanted to do works of faith. Sometimes they may not have felt like it. So he's praying that God would make them successful in the vows that they have committed themselves to. And we need to do the same for one another. This is why we come together as a community. No spectators allowed. Oh, you can spectate for a couple of weeks. But then we want you in. We want you to participate. We want you to be praying for our church. That the Lord would enable us to be true to the Lord Jesus Christ. So who can you add to your prayer list this week? Are you praying for me? Am I praying for you? Praying to the person to your left, your right. Let's pray for one another that God would enable us to be true to our commitment. The Christian life is hard and it's getting harder. But we still serve the same God. How much more do we need to encourage one another as we see the day approaching? It's coming quick. Jesus could come back before the final song is sung today. Or it could wait 200 more years. We don't know but it's coming close and we need to pray that the church of Jesus Christ would rise up. We do that by praying for one another. We do that by encouraging each other when we see spiritual successes in one another's lives, all to the glory and honor of God.